everybody, this is Jeremy. And I'm Jonathan. And we are the Evangelicals. And this is episode 11, and it is the year 2019. Yeah, Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year to everyone. And Alabama is no longer the college football champions. Yeah, it was quite a night last night. It was quite a night. I think the uh, Alabama Crimson Tide, Jeremy's Alabama Crimson Tide, I, Yeah, did they lose by the largest margin of a Nick Saban team at Alabama? Yeah, man, just keep rubbing it in. You I know? think that's and, what happened. It was just objectively was stating the facts here. That's all I'm doing. <laughs> just objectively stating the facts. It's great when the facts tend to lean our way, and uh, we, <laughs> that's all we have to do. It is, definitely did not last night. First freshman, first true freshman quarterback in the common bowl championship era, kind of since they've been deeming national champions not by voting, but by actually playing a game. In the NCAA Division One, first time a true freshman quarterback led a team to a national title as well, the starter. I would have a little caveat to that. I think you have to say started and led a team because Tua was a true freshman last no, year. No, fair enough. No, no, and, and they came in at halftime. That's what the set is. And it's, led his team to the national. <laughs> no, yeah. If <laughs> I got to spin it my way. <laughs> if you're ever wrong about Alabama football facts, Jeremy Thompson will definitely <laughs> make sure and correct you. So it's the year 2019, and uh, we're excited. We have a lot of exciting things coming up, and a lot of people that have agreed to come on and, and talk to us on the podcast. It's and be so, a great year. Yeah, yeah, we're really excited about, about like I said, doors that have opened, and um, we, we want to do our best to start off um, with a bank. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about a guy named Solomon in the Bible. And most often when Solomon is brought up, uh, it's mentioned about his wisdom, and he did. You know, God said, what, "What what can I give you?" And he could have asked for the defeat of all his enemies. He could have asked for anything, and he asked that God would give him the wisdom to lead and to guide the people. And and so, most often, uh, Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, is related to Solomon. Um, but there's a there's part of Solomon's story, his journey towards the end after he's built the temple of God that his um, that his dad. Uh, his father David had had given him the plans for. He's built the temple. Well, he starts to, um, I, I feel like maybe get a little comfortable, and he starts to just accrue all of this wealth for for Israel, but also for himself. and And the Bible goes into great detail about how much they had and how ornate his palace was that he had built, and especially his throne. It goes into these intricate details about lions and steps and ivory and gold and. And it, there, I think there's even a line where, where Solomon says, I want to be so rich, I want our nation to be so rich that silver is nothing. It, it is just not even considered valuable because we, um, we have gold and, and, and is a, a, a lot of gold. But what happens to, to Solomon is he starts to create all of these um, treaties with other nations. And part of that is he has all of these wives that he marries from all of these other countries. A whole lot of wives. Uh, around hundreds, 700. Hundreds with, of plus wives. Plus concubines on top of that. And, 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 and something starts to transpire in the life of Solomon that, that I don't know that is, is a great thing. And, uh, and, and so we're going to read a passage. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the life of Solomon. And then I think hopefully... Um, we will get to maybe how it relates to us as evangelicals, us as to the ch- to the, as the church, 
and uh, in where we currently find ourselves in uh, in our world. So let me read from First Kings. I'm going to read from First Kings chapter 11, starting in verse six. So this is about Solomon. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not completely follow the Lord as his father David had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. He did the same for all his foreign wives, who offered incense and sacrificed to their gods. So he builds these high places. And in a Jewish context and in an Old Testament context, we hear a lot about these high places and high hills in the book of Joshua and Judges and, and how it relates specifically in those books to the worship of Baal yeah. and how they would go on these high hills, build uh, these, set up these poles and how Baal was, and, and Asherah was these, was the fertility gods. And so they would worship and try to coerce the gods to act on their behalf, to make their crops grow. And here we have Solomon, who has just built a temple for the Lord, who has just prayed that God would inhabit this place, that this would be a symbol for him, is now going out. And for all of his wives that he has married from these other countries, he's now also building worship sites in the Holy Land, the land that God had promised them to these other gods, to these other deities, uh, which inevitably leads to... uh, the fall of the nation, which inevitably leads to God saying, you didn't live up to your end of the deal about being, uh, about worshiping me and worshiping me alone. And what's so intriguing, um, I'm actually going to speak on this passage a little bit Sunday at our church, uh, is there's a passage uh, right before this where it talks about he brings in all of these horses and chariots from Egypt, and he he brings in, uh, and, and, and then there's a, a, a passage in the book of Deuteronomy, and it's so intriguing to me. I just love the Bible, um, where God specifically says, hey, when you get into the land, eventually you're going to want a king, but when the king gets in power, don't trade any with Egypt, don't trade any with this nation because we are separating ourselves from the understanding of how they view the world, how they view power, how they view what might is. And so we're not going to have anything to do with them. And then it specifically says, and Solomon got all of these horses from Egypt, and it talks about how much he paid for each horse. And uh, and, and so it's just kind of this intriguing part of the story of Solomon, where it seems like we're going back to where the people of of God were, before David came and and this understanding of worshiping these other deities and setting up these other sites to these other gods in the land. When I look at Solomon's life, I have a hard time not thinking about my own life because the Bible implies that at the beginning, Solomon had somewhat pure intentions and he inherited somewhat of a godly heritage. But somewhere he went astray somewhere he got off. And when I think about Solomon, I think about the significance of relationships for one's spiritual well-being. Because Solomon at the beginning, he was um, not necessarily isolated, but he had not developed the economic international relationships that he had toward the end of being king. And the thing about relationships is there's give and take in every relationship that you have in your life. There's give and take in every relationship I have in my own life. And our relationships shape us. And 
what the book of Kings points out is that there came a shift in Solomon's life in which Solomon's loyalty to his relationships with these other kings and to his wives became more important, more important to him than his loyalty to God. And, uh, I mean, Jesus, Jesus addresses this issue in the Sermon on the Mount in which he says, you cannot serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. And then Jesus says, you can't serve both God and mammon. Commonly translated, you can't serve both God and money. But when I look at Solomon's life, I ask myself the question, what was the point at which he started? He stopped serving God. Because even throughout his life, there would be little moments where he would uh, worship God or kind of build a tribute to God, or there would be there would be positive moments, like in all of our lives, where we go to church, or we do something ritualistic with our family, or we give some sort of alms to the poor. I don't know that any of us who become loyal to this world or become loyal to other relationships ever intentionally turn our back on God. But turning one's back on God is something that happens subtly, one relationship at a time. And that's definitely what happened with Solomon. I think C.S. Lewis talks about that in Screwtape Letters, where Screwtape says at the end of one of the chapters, the, the best road, I'm going to butcher it, but it's something that the best road for Christians, for us to get Christians on, is the gradual road rather than the sudden. And, and I totally butchered that. But in, in the essence, what it's trying to say is if we can get Christians to start to walk slowly away from God, rather than thinking we're somehow going to create an event that's going to cause them to instantly turn their back on God. That's the fight that we don't want to fight, <laughs> the fight we want to do. And, and so it's, it's a, a, the slippery slope is a gradual one, in essence, is what it, he, he was saying in that letter. And I think, I think that that's right. Sometimes we, we never set out to say, I'm going to, to turn my back on God, but it happens, a small thing here, a small thing here, uh, which turns into a big thing here and then a bigger thing uh, on down the road. And, and I think that that's exactly potentially what happened to Solomon is, is who doesn't want more money? And I don't know that, that he ever had the intention of trying to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defy God with everything that I am. But one wife, two wives, let's build a God or a temple to this God of this wife and to this God of this wife and to this God of this nation so that they'll keep trading with us. And before you know it, He's got all these high places all around Jerusalem uh, to all these other gods other than Yahweh. When we think about the relationship of the ancients to God, I don't know that we use the metaphor that the prophets want to use when thinking about the relationship of a group of people to God. The prophets tend to look at romance or marriage as the ideal metaphor for a relationship with God. And in North American evangelical in North American evangelicalism, we have tended more to look at our relationship with God over the last 100 years as a penal relationship, one that has uh, judicial features, one that um, we we focus a lot on the atonement. Christ died for us, so I'm good. But we don't think about how how day to day we are cultivating a romance with a God who loves us. And what the prophets want to say about the people of Israel and what they would say about Solomon is that 
at some point in the relationship with God, the leaders of Israel stopped cultivating a loving romance of a, of a relationship of walking with God. And I think about the metaphor of marriage, and I think to myself as I spend time counseling people who are going through tragedies in their marriage, I often want to ask the question, what was the point at which your marriage fell apart? Yeah. And if you get two people in a room that are willing to talk about their marriage that's falling apart, oftentimes you'll get different, different moments. Because to each person, there was kind of a priority or an expectation that was blown. And so there were different moments for them in which the relationship started falling apart. The point being, a marriage doesn't fall apart usually in one day, in one moment, in one decision. There are a lot of little moments, a lot of little decisions, a lot of little instances of not being completely truthful, a lot of little instances of harboring bitterness that over time turn into what becomes a broken marriage or a divorce. And as you look at Solomon's life, this is definitely what you see. A lot of little moments of selling out to this ruler or this pagan God that really, according to the historical scribes, of the Old Testament and the prophets really resulted in the downfall of Israel and the exile. And I want to be cautious when I read these stories because I, we have to be critical. I ask myself the question, who have I sold out to? Because I'm not so different than Solomon. I would like some more money. I'd like some more money. And honestly, like if you'd give me the opportunity to do some things that were simple, I'd like some money. We're not, we weren't planning on talking about multi-level marketing schemes, but I think this is a really interesting phenomenon in our culture. We all want to make more money. Yep. And what's the thing that a lot of us have? Relationships. So what have we done in America? We've found the perfect way to exploit all of our relationships, whether it be through the internet or face-to-face. And a lot of us just sign up and join multi-level marketing schemes To make money, which aren't bad necessarily, I guess, intrinsically in themselves. But we start selling out the value of our relationships, the preciousness of moments of just being with other people. And we start asking ourselves the question, how can I flip a profit with this relationship? How can I coerce this person to buy my product? And I don't know that we think about very critically about our relationship with God as a romance that we ought to be cultivating day to day. And I wonder as a movement of people in North America and a lot of people would want to say as a country, talking about our country as a nation in a religious way, what was the moment that we got away from God? Because the fact of the matter is we are, we are not a people uh, we're, as evangelicals in America. We are not a people that necessarily prioritize and display the character of God day to day. We are not, evangelical Christians in America are not known as loving um, individuals that are a blessing to the world. And we have a problem with identity right now because we have not, like Solomon, been cultivating a relationship with God. I think that not only do we exploit our human relationships 
but often we also exploit our relationship with God about how what it will get me. And I will I will serve, I will follow as long as it produces or gives me good things. <laughs> and the minute a, a, a trial, the minute any suffering may show up, our first response sometimes is, how could you let this be? I've been serving you my whole life. And, and I think it's okay to question. I'm not saying that we should just accept everything. Rather, though, than the understanding of life is going to throw us things all the time. And our conviction is that God is good in the midst of it all. God is good in the midst of it all. And no matter what I, I find myself going through, it doesn't change the nature of who God is or where, where God or how God is choosing to be present in my life. And I, I tell people when my son uh, sit, was sick and, um, and was going through chemo and such, the church was just awesome. And, and it's funny how sometimes people will say things and they think they're being helpful and they're really not being helpful at all. They're, they're, and a lot of times they're just trying to even make themselves feel better about your suffering that, that because if, if the world works different than they think, then it could mean that they would have to go through that suffering as well. So then, you know, thank, thank the Lord, and we we're just blessed. You know, Caleb gets better. And um, it was interesting. People would come up to me after that and say, man, isn't God good? Isn't God good? And my response was always, I try to always respond, you don't understand, God was always good, even in the midst of the struggle. The fact that he's healed, we are very grateful and, and thankful, but it didn't change the nature. God would have still been good. <laughs> no matter what would have happened. Um, and so us going through that situation, but that's that would be, a, to me, a way of saying or exploiting my relationship with God, that I'm expecting God just to give me all of these good things, all of these blessings. And so I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to follow after him because of what it's going to do for me um, physically or financially or um, the way that I feel like I might prosper because of this relationship with God, rather than following Him, no matter what may come, no matter what may happen, believing that He will be with me, and I may even understand more of who He is in the midst of those hard times, rather than just if everything was laid out exactly the way that I had hoped it would be. So we've been using this passage from Kings to set up this idea of selling out one's relationship to God talking about Solomon as kind of our example of somebody who really got away from the heart of Israelite religion because he became so powerful and obsessed with his own image and his own relationships and his own life. Jesus, before he began his earthly ministry, after he had been baptized, the gospels tell us that he was led by the spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil which is a very, very significant passage. I want to read it and I want to talk about it because I think it's actually very relevant to the conversation about Solomon. So uh, Matthew 4 begins, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Jesus really serves here as a foil to Solomon. Jesus in this passage is set up as the one who does not bow down to any of the common temptations that really undid Solomon's kingdom, the temptations for power, the temptations for relevance, and temptations to impress people. I think what's interesting about all of these temptations is we read them as like, well, I've never been tempted to turn stones to bread. Yeah, right. These, <laughs> these crazy, huge, yeah, like I've never been tempted. Things. And, and, and so we think, well, Guess I'll never face that. But we we read the passage that talks says that Jesus was tempted in every way that we were, and there there seems to be this disconnect because we're like, well, I've never been tempted to do that. And so I think there's something bigger that the gospel writer is trying to get at us about how Jesus was tempted, and we we so often get to just the the bare necessity without understanding the bigger picture of what's actually happening in Matthew chapter four through these temptations. And so do maybe just take them one by one and talk about them a little bit. Yeah, I think uh, Henry Nouwen, he talks about the first one, the temptation of bread, really um, for us being a temptation of relevance, one of um, fulfilling desires uh, to be relevant and included in what's going on in society. And when I think about the first temptation as a worship leader, I can't help but think that we in the American church have sold out a pursuit of God and worship for relevance. I mean, if I don't lead my people in singing a song that was written in the last 10 years in my congregation, I get notes from people saying, hey, you know, it'd be really awesome if we could have some relevant worship. <laughs> Seriously, man. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, Seriously. I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing. It's, we, we, we come to worship, not to worship God, we come to worship not to fall on our faces in confession that we have strayed away from the one who loves us more than any other. We come to worship to feel good about how relevant we are in the Christian subculture of evangelicalism. And there is a great temptation, uh, especially in the megachurch world, to be the most relevant church. Because if you've got the lights, if you've got the sound system, if you've got the band, if you've got all of the bells and whistles that the big church has, then you feel like you can keep up with them, keep up with the Joneses of worship, which is just the most opposite antagonistic view that one could have of actual, genuine, authentic worship of a God who loves us and pursues us. And I think it's Amos, in Amos chapter 5 God says, I despise your assembly, assemblies away with the noise of your songs. I don't even care about that stuff. All I, care, all I want from you is justice and mercy, but you're so obsessed with your productions and it's detestable to me. And I think as people who are trying to be 
for the world and make a difference in the world, that that relevance is something that is so tempting for sure. And I think what is so intriguing about this specific temptation is there was a Jewish myth, a Jewish understanding that when Messiah would come, that he would feed all people, that there would be no more poverty, there'd be no more hunger among the people. And it goes back to this understanding that before when they were in the wilderness, manna rained down from heaven. So there was literally everybody had food. Nobody went hungry in the the nation of Israel. And that was kind of this understanding that when Messiah would come, that would happen again. And so the temptation is not just for Jesus to eat, but to see all of these stones in the wilderness and turn them all to bread so that the children of Israel can be fed again and be hungry. Now, what a temptation to think, man, I could do this and everybody's going to like me. Everybody's going to think I am the best and everybody's going to think I'm the Messiah. And what an easier way to be Messiah than going to the cross and ultimately doing what was going to be necessary for us to have life. It was an easy way out. And, and I think the tempter was obviously understood that on, on a huge level. So he comes to Jesus and says, hey, be relevant. These people will follow you. They will believe you. They will, they will do whatever you tell them if you give them what they want. And I think in worship, that is what people are looking for. And the temptation is to say, hey, we're trying to feed them. Let's give them what they want. Let's, let's do it so that they'll come. And people will think, oh, man, they, they, these, they understand um, who God is, or they understand me, and uh, they're giving me exactly what I want, maybe then rather what I need. If you were to ask anybody why they worship, where they do, I shouldn't say anybody. A vast majority of people that I ask, why do you worship where you worship? They list off for me things that they like, things that please them about the place where they worship. Essentially, we try to find places of worship that are relevant to us, that are to our liking. But we don't go to worship pursuing the one who is pursuing us. And in that sense, we have worship completely backward in North America as evangelicals. And we don't go to worship pursuing a community of people right. to be on the journey with, no matter what we're singing, as long as it's worshiping or they're pointing us to God, that the important piece is not the community and the relationships. It does seem like the the, the important piece is do I get the warm fuzzies when Jonathan hits the B flat chord on whatever song it is? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When Most the electric people, guitar yeah. gets turned up a little bit more loudly and it reverberates in my oh, yeah. chest. Oh yeah. <laughs> and we have to be careful as people who who are in charge of planning and leading that we don't try to manipulate those feelings too. And I think that that is a, a big, a, something that I am continually thinking through. And because I've growing up as a, as a teenager that went to church camp, as a teenager that was a part of that, um, it was easy to, hey, when this song plays on Thursday night of camp, that's the time that God's going to fall and do something big. And sometimes I think it was more about the emotion of the moment <laughs> than it was about um, what God was really saying to me at that particular point in my life. So the devil tempts Jesus with turning rocks into bread. Then he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, throw yourself down from here and let the angels catch you and let everybody in Jerusalem see 
how amazing you are. Kind of David Blaine style. <laughs> but with also the thought that all the people in the temple would have known that, probably that specific passage in the Psalms, and probably would have known that it probably would have related to Messiah-type figure, that God's not going to let the Messiah strike a foot on the stone. And, and so once again, the temptation to become Messiah a different way through power, through through the extravagant, through the, the let me show you uh, the you know the sign maybe that the Pharisees demanded a sign. Let me show you, and um, and so I think that the temptation for a lot of people today is, man, we we want to to do something big so that people will know and and want to be a part of what's going on here because of look at look at this big thing that we did. We all want to impress others. Yeah, we just want to impress people, and I get incredibly. Nervous and uncomfortable when I see Christians posting their good deeds on Facebook. Yeah. I just get anxious about that. I'm like, is this what religion is for you? Is it really your opportunity to impress others with all the good stuff that you're doing? Or like when I get, even when I get texts from people, from lay people, uh, telling me about something awesome that they did for the Lord. uh, I understand that as a pastor, I'm prone to receive those things and I want to celebrate with people. And I'm not trying to discourage people from sharing those things with me. However, I do wonder sometimes what are people's motivations for living godly lives? Because Jesus says, when you pray to your father who is unseen, go into your closet and close the door. But the fact of the matter is I am a part of a group of evangelicals who don't have time to go into their closet and close the door because we're so stinking busy with posting all the good deeds that we're doing on social media. None of us are actually doing the hard work of going into our room and closing the door and praying repentant prayers to a God who just wants to spend time with us, who wants to reveal his nature and his character to us. And this is, this is the temptation of the devil to Jesus is, Hey, you don't have to just be ultimate truth privately. You can impose your truth on everybody else. Impress them. Show them that you're really God. And they will believe it. They will believe it. There's a, a term, um, urban pride. And, and, and I think it's used sometimes when people will hear a message or they hear somebody talk about going to the inner city and helping children who are, don't have the education, don't have the means. And, and sometimes it's, it's said, hey, don't do that. Don't have urban pride. Don't do that because of what how people are going to view you or what they're going to think about you, that you forsook all of this stuff to go give your life to the inner city. If you're going to do it, that's awesome. But don't do it for what you're going to get out of it. Once again, don't do it to manipulate the relationship and, and the, the understanding of, of what it's going to do for you. Do it because with the, the understanding that if nobody ever hears about anything that you're doing— You still have to do it because you know that that's what God is wanting you to do. The third thing the devil tempts Jesus with is political power, domination of the nations, which seems like a silly thing to tempt God with. But I mean, throughout history, God has not been one, at least in the Bible, that imposes himself on nations, you know? And so... The devil says, if you bet on and worship me here in my domain, here on earth, as he assumed it was his, then I will 
make you ruler over all of the nations. And when I, when I hear this as a North American, I just can't help but remember the, think about the movement of my childhood in the 80s and 90s of the radical movement of evangelicals to, to build the moral majority that we might have sway in the political composition of North American politics. And the fact of the matter is, as evangelicals in many senses, we have sold out to political power. I mean, we, we give as much money as evangelicals to lobbyists as we do to feeding children internationally. I mean, it is crazy the amount of energy that we as evangelical Christians put into a political system that proves over and over and over again to be broken and a complete joke. Um, but for whatever reason, we want political power. We want our side to win in the secular political realm. And what an easier way for Jesus to show that he was the Messiah. If you think about what was happening at the time, the Jews wanted to be out of the from under the oppression of an empire. And so if the temptation was to be, I will be the empire and we will, we will defeat all of the other ones and people will look to me because this is what the Jewish people wanted all along was to, to defeat the Romans. And here it seems the tempter is offering that to Jesus pretty easy. And yeah, I, I think that what, what I'm really concerned about is when we for lack of a better term, there probably is a better one, but when we jump in bed with a specific political ideology or opinion in either side, all sides, whatever, what tends to happen is whatever that that branch or that power says or believes, we either have to jump on board with that, whether it goes against who we believe God's calling us to be, or we have to, to to go against it. And it's so much harder to stand against when we feel like they have done so much for us. And so I feel like sometimes, case in point, we, we see a lot of evangelical leaders these days bending or smoothing over things um, that when we look at the scripture would be a big deal. And to take it back to Solomon, in Deuteronomy, it says, hey, don't do this with the Egyptians. <laughs> Seemed pretty cut and dry. Solomon made some some covenant or some treaty or some relationship with that people. He struck a deal, Jeremy. Which cost him to then say, well, I'm going to get my horses from those people, or you know, I'm going to make a deal with those people. And uh, I, I, we may have talked about it before on the podcast, or I talked about somebody else, that it's interesting that when a former president had an affair, the outrage that came from a, a, the evangelical church, and then now we have somebody who has had openly <laughs> multiple situations that we would call very scandalous or very inappropriate as Christians, and somehow, well, I don't want, I don't need this guy to be, uh, he's not my pastor-in-chief, he's my commander-in-chief. And, and, and so it's just... And I'm not saying one's right or the other, don't hear what I'm not saying, but it seems like in one instance, we were out very, very adamant that this was wrong. And in another instance, because we want the the benefit of what we believe to be this mutual relationship, somehow those things seem to fade away. But he's driving the bus to get done the things that I think need to be done in Jesus's name. 
So I'm willing so I'm willing to overlook. I'm willing to overlook standards of morality. I'm willing to overlook things that are happening under the table because my agenda is getting done. And this is exactly the situation with Solomon. I mean, we read, we read the history of Solomon that is not written very generously because the writers of Kings are wanting to say to us, hey, this guy turned his back on God and this was the beginning of the downfall of the nation of Israel. This is the beginning of the exile, was compromising on little things. Um, but I don't know that we're, I don't know that we're self-critical of ourselves as we read these stories of Solomon. But I, I wonder what Solomon would say to us today if he could come back and speak to us, if he could come back from the dead, seeing what happened to the people of Israel. Um, I, wonder what, I wonder what his perspective would be on our current situation as evangelicals and even as Americans. I have a feeling we wouldn't want to hear and I have a feeling that we wouldn't hear because I feel like the OT prophets tell us exactly what Solomon potentially would say to us. Isn't this what Jesus says to uh, the man who dies? Uh, or is remember the, the parable that Jesus tells of uh, the rich man and Lazarus? Mm-hmm. And the rich man says, yes. the rich man says to to uh, Lazarus, go back, go back and tell my brothers who are still living to change the way that they're living. And uh, I think the voice in the story says, even if someone would rise from the dead and come to them, they would not listen because they have Moses and the prophets and they didn't listen even to them. Yes, I love that. Because to, to me, what that says and even a bigger context is to say Jesus is only doing what Moses and the prophets had tried to tell you to do before. And now we see it in flesh, but the message that Jesus is preaching is no different than the message has been from the beginning. I don't feel like this has been our most positive <laughs> conversation that we've had. I mean, I emotionally, I'm kind of in a place of sadness right now, just as I don't, I don't know that I thought emotionally I would go to the place that we have in this conversation as we laid it out before getting on the mics. Um, and maybe we've done a little bit too much bashing of our own people today. Maybe we're looking too negatively. I, I mean, it's hard not to look negatively at yourself and critically at yourself when you read the prophets and when you read the book of Kings and when you read the temptation of Jesus. So, I mean, I don't think we've been untrue to the character of scripture today. But maybe you could give us something to just walk away with, uh, to think about, to ponder, maybe even to pray as we live into these days in the milieu, the situations that we find ourselves in. Let's see if we can really bring this back full circle. So a football team I really like lost the national championship. You're hilarious. <laughs> And you know, the first thing I thought about when I woke up this morning was, which piece of Alabama gear am I going to wear today? And I think that as we try to navigate the stickiness, the messiness, as we try to navigate when people are saying things that, that maybe we don't necessarily hold on to because we think it steps outside of what it means to be an evangelical, the hope that I have 
is that in the midst of the hard, in the midst of the pain, there are still people who, when they wake up, they think, okay, how am I going to be Jesus today? How am I going to live in the midst of where I find myself faithful to the cross, faithful to who he's calling me to be? And no matter what may be happening when I turn on the news, and no matter what evangelical leader may say something that makes me want to boil on the inside, I always come back to, I know there's hope because there are always people that no matter what is happening, they always put on the cross every morning when they wake up. And that gives me hope in the midst of the pain and the struggle and the uncertainty and the craziness of where we sometimes see the church. There's always a group of people who says, I'm going to put on the cross today. No, Even if nobody sees me, I'm going to be who Jesus is calling me to be in the midst of this. And I pray and hope to be one of those people, man. The Evangelicals podcast is recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio.